Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The fires in the Amazon have been burning for three weeks. The smoke is visible from space. Most of the news recently has been about the controversy that's ensued after President Bolsonaro's rejection of the G7 aid offer. We're going to talk about some of the people-oriented issues surrounding the fires in the Amazon. With me is Chris Feliciano-Arnold, and he is the author of The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, a lot of the things we hear about the people who live in the Amazon region is that they need economic alternatives, that, um, you know, there's farming and there's logging and there's there's not a lot else for people to make money at. And uh, what are the challenges that, that people face there economically? Well, that's a great question. And I think one of the challenges that the region faces is um, worldwide and even in Brazil, I think there's a great uh, misconception and a somewhat outdated perception of the region in that uh, you're right that in many of the the most remote regions of the Amazon rainforest, there's not a tremendous amount of economic opportunity simply by virtue of the fact that transportation is really difficult, communication can be really difficult, um, and access to even um, basic um, resources like education, healthcare, clean water, sanitation, and so forth can be really hard to come by. Um, at the same time, the Amazon isn't uh, necessarily a static, pristine rainforest region that's that's remained untouched for centuries. It's actually a, di- a very dynamic region that's that's changing quite rapidly. So when we look across the Amazon basin, we see that it's actually home to more than 30 million people and home to a number of large cities. Um, a great deal of transportation between those cities and trade between those cities. And some of the larger cities like um, Manaus or Belém, for example, are not just home to uh, you know agricultural ports, uh, but they're also home to really dynamic industries in technology, manufacturing, science, research, and so forth. And so one of the big challenges that I see in the region is that, like any other rapidly developing region across the world, there's a huge um, urban and rural divide in terms of economic opportunity. And when we look at some of the political challenges around how policymakers in, in Brazil and elsewhere look at the challenges of the region, I think there are many people who, who fundamentally see the Amazon rainforest challenges as being rural ones, um, when in fact it's a much more dynamic region than that in, in economic and in, in social terms. Well, what are some of the incentives that would get that would change behavior in the region? I, I don't know if the you know rural situation if people would respond to incentives to um, you know come for jobs in the city or would be attracted to that, to that kind of thing is that better? So one one of the most important things that we can do to incentivize more sustainable development in the Amazon is find ways for there to be more um, economic opportunity on land that has already been cleared. And so right now, for a variety of reasons, landowners on the frontier in the Amazon have every incentive each year to continue to slash and burn increasingly farther into the interior of the forest. Um, One of the reasons for that is because oftentimes land management and soil uh, uh, soil quality is, is very poor. And so rather than being able to continue to manage one's land and continue to grow crops and raise livestock on the same plot of land, 
um, farmers of all sizes are sort of compelled to go deep, ever deeper into the forest, which is why we see um, this sort of unbridled land grab at, during dry season or during fire seasons like this. Um, so in terms of incentives, um, some recent research has shown that one of the most important things that, that um, can be done in the region is to help existing landowners become better stewards of their own land. Um, this can take a lot of different shapes, such as um, learning how to uh, better um, vaccinate their livestock so that so that their livestock is generally healthier, learning how to plant different crops and rotate their crops differently or um, not clear so um, so much land that the that the soil is exposed to the heat of the sun all day all day long and making sure to maintain trees that protect and shade the soil so there 's a lot of actually um, low-hanging fruit in terms of skills and techniques that can be applied to existing cleared land. And so I think in terms of incentives, um, giving smart, far, uh, small and, and medium-sized farmers more opportunities to learn some of those new techniques, um, because even from the perception of a small farmer, clearing that land, clearing new land every season is brutal, brutal work. It requ- that slashing and burning um, work is is exceedingly difficult. It's tough on the men and women who do that work, and it's tough on the families who are who are supporting that work. And so, I think there's a lot of promise in um, helping those small farmers find ways to uh, create and more sustainable and thriving um, uh, productions on the land that they already occupy. Well, it sounds like that would take supple government programs or outreach of of a kind that I don't imagine exists in. Rural Brazil is that true? That's absolutely right. And one of the one of the things that um, makes this this fire season particularly alarming is that what this is really our our first full burning season that we've seen with Jair Bolsonaro and his administration in power. What we saw last year was that even Bolsonaro's um, pro agriculture, anti environmental protection rhetoric on the campaign trail was enough to spur an increase in burning and an increase in deforestation um, and a change in attitude against environmental protection in the Amazon just through rhetoric alone. However, since he's taken office, um, pretty much every step of the way, he's done as much as he can within his power to roll back environmental protections, to gut environmental protection agencies. And the trouble with that is that even during the days of the Workers' Party and, and even during some of Lula's most promising environmental protections, um, those agencies were still in their in relatively nascent form. And so um, Brazil's grasp on environmental protection, the Amazon, although they were showing great promise for a number of years, was still in its very early stages. And so it has not taken long for Bolsonaro to undo years, if not decades, of progress in the Amazon. And so you're exactly right that to see that sort of um, grassroots effort to improve sustainable development at the small farm level is going to take a level of thoughtful regulation and implementation that um, there's no indications on the horizon that that is in Bolsonaro's game plan for the region. And just to mention a few things about his environmental ideas, I noticed um, there's an article in the New York Times today about the uh, paradise for pesticides that he has unleashed, 290 new 
um, products for, uh, are, are coming on the market there. Among the new appro- approvals, 87 products are extremely toxic, 34 are highly toxic, according to the Brazilian government itself. Uh, you, it, this, is, this is not the guy who's moving in for thoughtful land management. Not, not by any means. And, and Brazil, even before Bolsonaro was already one of the world's leading users of, of pesticides, and uh, including some of which, which have already been banned elsewhere in the world. And so Brazil was not, uh, was not necessarily starting from a good place in terms of its pesticide usage. And this um, sort of open season for farming and, and the fact that that's including um, all of these dangerous pesticides is yet one more reason for alarm. And one of the things that um, we know is that this this intense pesticide use affects the water table and affects water quality in regions far, far away from where those chemicals are actually being used. So increasingly, the consequences of this pesticide usage will not only be felt in rural regions, but will increasingly be felt in the cities as well. I'm talking with Chris Feliciano Arnold, and he's the author of The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon, and we're talking about the fires in the Amazon. I wanted to mention something about indigenous people who live in the Amazon region and what role they can play in this dynamic. Do they have uh, the power to um, make change? Yeah, I think if there is a ray of hope in this era, it's that indigenous Brazilians and actually indigenous communities across the Amazon basin are organized like never before. So if we look in history to, say, the 1960s, uh, 70s, and 80s, during some of the uh, more recent waves of just rampant deforestation and unbridled land grabs, um, in those eras, indigenous communities were uh, very much... um, struggling to connect with each other, to build coalitions. Oftentimes, indigenous communities were left to try to fend for themselves in a local context or at times regional context, and often very reliant on the help of either um, liberation theologians or um, outside NGOs to, to help them organize and get their message out. However, now in this hyper-connected age that we all live in, um, one of the advantages to the fact that uh, the internet has taken over the world, including many, many parts of the Amazon rainforest, is that indigenous communities now have the means to organize themselves and to tell their own stories and to share their own voices with the world without necessarily relying on the media um, as mediators. So we saw this just a few weeks ago, in fact, when... um, in Amapá region, there was a uh, accusations that a indigenous leader had been killed by um, invading miners. Now, if we go back to the 1990s, early 2000s, there have been cases where news of such violence in the interior might take days, if not weeks or months, to reach the outside world. In this case. Um, that indigenous community was able to get that news out to its area representative, to share that news with the world. And within a matter of days, there were people in through, throughout Brazil and throughout the world um, crying out for justice in that case. Um, even here recently um, in this latest wave of fires, um, a, a, a quick scroll through social media and the various hashtags that are organizing around the fires in the Amazon will show – 
a number of indigenous communities organizing, rallying, telling their stories, sharing live video of the fires burning on their reservations. Now, the fact that they can organize and share those stories does not necessarily mean that anything is going to necessarily um, happen. But the fact that they have been empowered to to share their stories directly and immediately shows that we are in a different era in terms of indigenous communities being able to share their own voices and tell their own stories without relying on the mediation of the outside world as as they had to in the past. Are there countries that are doing a um, better job of it? You mentioned that um, Brazil was doing a pretty good job of it under Lula. Um, are there other countries in the Amazon that are uh, doing all right? So one of the things that uh, makes this moment particularly complicated is that if we if we look at um, Brazil, it's uh, very easy for us to situate what's happening in the rainforest in terms of these fires within the context of Bolsonaro and his extreme right, nationalistic, um, anti-indigenous, and frankly, just downright racist viewpoint. However, if we look um, just across the border uh, to other countries in the Amazon Basin, for example, in Bolivia, we see that even in, in Bolivia, largely considered a, a leader among the left in terms of the countries of the Amazon, that their uh, rainforest is also burning at at a at an accelerated clip this um, this season, and so it gets um, this issue gets complicated when we think in terms of left and right politics, and that there's there are arguments on both the left and the right for the need for those people who live in the Amazon to be able to both use and conserve their land. Um, another thing, however, that makes this this particular fire season so distressing is that until recent years, Brazil was very much a world leader and a guiding light on this issue of tropical rainforest conservation. And so one of the reasons why you've seen such a great public outcry in Brazil, among people of all political persuasions, is that this is an area that, for all of the dysfunction and political corruption and and financial woes that Brazil has suffered in recent years, um, many Brazilians have seen environmental issues as an area where they've shown world leadership, where the Workers' Party and Lula's administration, um, particularly in the earlier years of his administration, were showing great leadership and innovation in terms of their um, designs for sustainable development. Uh, and, and so one of the things that makes this uh, moment we're going through in the Amazon particularly heartbreaking is that a region that had, had for a time been a source of new ideas and great promise is now seemingly taking a, a great step backward. I noticed that Marina Silva, who was the environment minister during Lula, recently said the fires in the Amazon are a crime against humanity and uh, was during Lula's government that they managed to reduce deforestation by 80 percent. She, uh, you know, has talked about the things that were done during the administration to do that and to uh, kind of execute the the plan, but she doesn't has seem to have proved very popular as an independent politician. There seems to be some support for protecting the the um, Amazon, but she ran for president twice and she got less uh, the second time around, if I'm not mistaken, in in the polls. Uh, why, why doesn't someone like that take? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm I'm actually really glad that you brought her up because. One thing that I think is interesting about um, the current the current discourse around environmental policy in Brazil is that uh, there's there is a temptation to look back through rose colored glasses 
or green colored glasses, you could say, at the Lula administration. But when we look at um, Marina Silva, one thing that uh, we can keep in mind is that she actually left Lula's administration in protest um, after Lula decided to go forward with some environmental policies that she fundamentally disagreed with. Um, And if we think back on the Workers' Party, for all the uh, progress and for all the progressive thinking they took in the Amazon in terms of sustainable development, they still um, did some tremendous damage. So if we look during the Workers' Party, we see um, that during their their reign in power in, in, in the Amazon region, we saw uh, the, the moving forward of an enormous, one of the largest hydroelectric dam projects in the world, the Bella Monche Hydroelectric Dam Project in Altamira. Um, we also saw in the Amazon region um, a tremendous increase in private prisons, mass incarceration, public security issues. And so by no means did um, the Workers' Party flawlessly execute on its environmental policy. But when we look at um, Silva, for example, her uh, vision for the Amazon was very much grounded in the lived experience of someone who grew up in the rainforest and who's very on very intimate terms with the forests and the challenges of development that are presented there. And so, thankfully, I do think that um, while while her presidential campaigns floundered for a variety of reasons, not not necessarily limited to her environmental policies, I do think that there is a new and highly energized generation of leaders coming up behind her, including many indigenous leaders, um, politicians and activists who may be able to carry that mantle and share that message and that story for a new generation of Brazilians. Because I I do believe that um, across the political spectrum, there are a there's an entire generation of Brazilians. It's a very young country, and there's an entire generation of Brazilians that are that is waiting impatiently for that next generation of leaders. Chris Feliciano Arnold is the author of The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the fires in the Amazon. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about some recent ethical issues revolving around euthanasia and the death penalty. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about some of the ethical issues surrounding euthanasia and capital punishment. With me is Craig Klugman. He's a professor of health sciences at DePaul University. He's a bioethicist and medical anthropologist who works on end-of-life issues. Craig is chair of the Ethics Subcommittee of the Illinois Crisis Crisis Standards of Care Workgroup. Thanks for joining me, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. I wanted to, you know, I think a lot of people, 
think of euthanasia, and we're going to start with a couple of euthanasia cases in the Netherlands as something that's pretty out there and um, futuristic. But there are places like the Netherlands that have been doing this for years, and there are more and more of them increasingly. There are even states in the United States that have been doing this for quite some time. Well, so the Netherlands has been doing euthanasia since 2002. Right. And they've had about 50,000 cases, a little more than that. But there is no place in the United States where we do euthanasia. So what we do in the United States is assisted suicide. We allow physicians in nine jurisdictions, eight states plus the Washington, D.C., to help people to commit suicide through doctor supervision, prescribing a medication that you can be sure we'll do it and we'll help you end your life and do so peacefully. Um, but there's no place in the U.S. where you can have euthanasia done. Is that what's the, the what's exactly the difference? There? So the difference because, is I mean, it seems like a small difference. It's small, but it's key. So in assisted suicide, the patient takes the medication themselves that ends their life. In euthanasia, somebody administers usually an injection to you. So it's a difference between what do you do and what does somebody else do for you. All right. And so um, th- that kind of um, helps with a lot of ethical issues or I don't know, it, it, <laughs> with, with faith and religion and, and things of that nature. Well, it depends. So different religions have different perspectives and many religious beliefs. You don't have the right to end your life early at all. In others, suicide is wrong, but in some, suicide is an acceptable alternative. Um, in most religions, you know, murder, which is what we would call euthanasia in the United States, is not acceptable. And Canada recently um, came online. Yeah, so it is now legal in Canada to have assisted suicide across all the provinces. Um, there's actually only five countries in the world that allow euthanasia, but there are many more that allow assisted suicide. Now, let's get to these cases that happened recently in the Netherlands. And um, the one in the news that um, caught our eye was one where um, a 74-year-old woman uh, had uh, been given fatal doses of drugs uh, despite some indications that she might have changed her mind. And this was something that happened three years ago. And just now the Netherlands is uh, uh, bringing court proceedings against the doctor. Yeah. So this is uh, a case that's being brought to sort of clarify the law. And the prosecutors are saying, you know, we think the doctor stepped the line, but really we want some clarification on the law here. And so in this situation, when this woman was diagnosed with dementia, she signed a statement saying that she did not want to, that she would like to end her life before being put in a care home. And she wanted to be able to make that decision when she could make that decision. And so we flash forward three years, and she is at the point now where they are giving her the medication. Remember, this is the doctors giving it to you because it's euthanasia. And and they put poison in her coffee, basically, in her drink, and she wakes up. And so what the doctor does is have the family hold her down while they give her the infusion. And this was disturbing because – They didn't ask the woman at that time when they were doing this if she wanted to. And the doctor says there was nothing I heard that would change what she had said three years ago in this written statement. But the statement is not clear. It's not as clear as I do not want to live any longer or please have someone kill me in this event. There is this question ethically over whether you are the same person when you are diagnosed with a disease versus when you are then 
inside the disease, especially with something like dementia, which completely changes your personality, your way of thinking. And so part of what's disturbing about this case is the fact that somebody who, a woman who did not want to be killed at this moment in time or appeared not to want to be killed, um, was then held down to be killed. And the prosecution seems to be saying that they would have liked to have consent from the woman at the time that it was done. The doctor saying that she wasn't capable of giving consent at that point, and so the original statement held. And this would seem to be an important thing to figure out because in reading the statistics, um, in the Netherlands, 26,000 euthanasia requests in 2018, and 27 to 28% of them were from mentally ill patients. Right. So in the Netherlands, you can have euthanasia for physical illness. Most of them are things like advanced stage cancers, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, but there's also a number percentage of them that are for mental illness. And there was a case of a young girl who had been sexually assaulted as a young child who at age 17 chose euthanasia because she felt she couldn't live with um, the repercussions of that assault. Um, and under Dutch law, she was allowed to. Well, but she was denied the um, denied access to euthanasia and ended up um, committing, suicide. committing suicide, starving herself. Right. So we call this VSED, voluntary stopping eating and drinking, and it is a form of suicide, but it is medically supervised. So you are given pain control, you are given moisture on your lips and your mucous membrane so that it is a less painful experience. But yeah, it is a form of suicide. Well, in that case, it seems it still seems harder than euthanasia than if she was administered euthanasia. And so that's one of the arguments in favor of euthanasia, that all of these are sort of stopgap measures that do entail potential suffering for somebody in those, those last moments of life, whereas euthanasia is quicker, it is um, easier, and you're more likely to not have pain and suffering in the last moments. But on the other hand, um, you know, I don't have... A statistics about what kind of mentally ill patients they are out of the 27 or 28 percent who request euthanasia. But you don't want to just give people with depression euthanasia. Well, there actually is a case of somebody with severe depression that did not respond to any treatments, and she was euthanized under this law. Um, There are cases of people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia requesting under this law. So it's not... um, Ethically, it's, it's a difficult thing. You know, do people have the right to make their own decisions? Do they have the right to make their own decisions when they are clear-minded and rational and capable of making those? And then should somebody who three years later now is an advanced stage of dementia, should they be required to follow the dictates that an earlier version of themselves made when they were kind of a different person? You know, and it sounds like the Dutch work through this um, kind of carefully. And a normal request uh, is four to six weeks if it's, there's a physical illness. But if there is a mental illness, it you know there's kind of like an indefinite period, and they seem to really work things through. Right, and it's not as simple as going to your doctor. Hey, doc, I'm depressed and sad, and I'd like to die. Please kill me. And you know, you never leave that office meeting. You have to have, you know, um, psychological reviews. You have to get an opinion from a second physician. There's paperwork to file with the state. So it's it's not as simple as, you know, people requesting things and then getting them. There are some checks and balances involved. 
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about ethical issues surrounding euthanasia and capital punishment. With me is Craig Klugman from uh, DePaul University. He's a bioethicist and medical anthropologist who works on end-of-life issues. And I wanted to swing over to the death penalty because the United States is uh, quite involved these days. The Department of Justice recently uh, said they want to resume the federal execution after a 16-year moratorium, and uh, there will be a series of executions in December uh, that, that are coming up. Um, the U.S. is out of the global norm here. This is um, – there aren't a lot of developed countries who do executions, and even among uh, you know less developed countries, there's uh, a trend towards – uh, getting rid of the death penalty. Yeah, there are about 52 countries in the world that still have the death penalty, and the U.S. is the only developed Western nation that still has it. Uh, Japan. Western nation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and the U.S. is doing this. Um, uh, you know, why, why are we doing this now? Why, why, why are we, you know, stoking? Why, why, why do we have a moratorium? It's, it seems like... Um, <laughs> So back in 1972, there was a Supreme Court case that and be, was decided so that there were no executions in the United States. And then in 1977, the Supreme Court ruled differently and suddenly executions could begin again. But on the federal level, we haven't done this for a long time because – one, um, there's problems with the, the method we use. So we use lethal injection in the United States, and there's been problems getting some of the drugs. Some of the drugs are produced by European companies who don't want to sell to United, the United States if it's possible to be used in executions. Um, so a lot of states now have gone to a single drug regimen instead of the triple cocktail that was traditionally used, and there's some question of how effective that is. Um, that we're in a state now of... It's part of the politics. Um, we have a, an executive branch that wants to be seen as tough on crime. And so that is a large part of what's going on now. Um, we also know that there have been about 165 cases of people on death row who were exonerated, who were found not to be guilty of the crime. And we know that some people who are innocent do end up getting executed and then are found to be innocent later. So the thinking was it was better not to have execution if the potential of one innocent person to be killed existed. And um, in the United States, we have um – do we have any alternative to the way we execute people? Because I noticed that Japan hangs people. Um, um, there are other places that do it differently. Well, the state of Utah actually had firing squad for a very long time. They were the last ones to to get rid of that. And they've considered bringing that, that back. There's discussions about bringing back the electric chair. Now, the reasons that these don't exist in current practice are because they were considered to be cruel. Um, an electric chair, not everybody is successfully killed in the first time. Um, sometimes there's a lot of pain and suffering. It's also very unseemly to watch. You see somebody strapped down to a chair and they're spasming and they're thrashing about. And um, if their mouth guards aren't in, they can be screaming. Firing squad is very violent and dramatic. So a lot of the – what we like about lethal injection is it looks clean and neat and surgical. And so there's not a lot of – disturbance for people who are observing it. Um, Amnesty International keeps pretty good track of, of what's going on globally. And the most executions take place in China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, and Iraq. And um, 
uh, these countries are doing sometimes hundreds. They they use um, beheading, electrocution, hanging, lethal injection, and shooting. Um, it doesn't seem like there is a not cruel option in the bunch. Well, you're deliberately ending a person's life, usually against their will. So in a way, none of this can be you know compassionate or, or without violence and without cruelty involved. You know, the person is not choosing this. It's a difference between euthanasia, say, where a person is volunteering to die and capital punishment. A person is not necessarily – not necessarily. There are a few who claim they want it and um, that it's uh, – they believe they deserve it. But for the vast majority of people, the state is forcing this on them. I mean, in the United States since 1977, we have had 1,500 executions. That's an astounding number of people. You know, and it seems like the popularity of the death penalty, you know, goes back and forth, you know, since you mentioned the Supreme Court cases since the 70s. I know Joe Biden was enthusiastic about the death penalty. He his mind. He just flipped (laughs) right before the announcement um, because of of some of these other cases seem to to be, you know, persuasive that we're putting innocent people to death. Right. I mean, we are doing that. Um, Also, there's more people on death row who are minority who are male, who are poor, and who are less educated. It's a correlation. If you don't meet those things, you are less likely to be given a death sentence in your trial. Uh, What are the options for pushing back against uh, federal executions? Well, the states can always sue. That's always an option. I mean, it has been tradition. So the states can do that, but federal law tends to override uh, this likely will end up as a Supreme Court case at some point, I suppose. Congress can also pass laws. You know, we we forget that Congress is a co-equal branch of government, but, you know, we can contact our representatives and ask them to pass laws to get rid of capital punishment on the federal level. Craig Klugman is a professor of health sciences at DePaul University. He's a bioethicist and medical anthropologist who works on end-of-life issues. Thanks for joining us and talking about some of the ethical issues surrounding euthanasia and capital punishment here in the U.S. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson, and we'll talk about international music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host of Beat Latino on Vocalo and music and culture writer all over the place. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Now, we have a sad thing today, this this time around. Um, there is an accordionist from Mexico, Celso Pina, and he was recently uh, at Pilsen Fest and... Uh, be, he passed away? Yes, uh, he actually passed away a few days after Pilsen Fest, which was his last concert. And he was truly an icon, the rebel of the accordion, um, an icon from Mexico who brought this whole genre and in a very different and fresh way, uh, the cumbia, which um, 
here's some cumbia. Here's kind of like the classic, classic cumbia, the one that all the aunts and uncles and grandparents dance to at all the weddings and that was super popular in the 40s, probably originated, 40s, 50s, went through all the Americas from Colombia all the way, but probably started in Colombia hundreds of years ago as a Ghanaian dance rhythm called cumbe. But here's some classic orchestral cumbia, Lucho Bermúdez. That's a that's a terrific sound. I, I, I whenever I think of cumbia music, I just think beat 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 beat. Well, you might be hearing maybe some <laughs> of the uh, more contemporary versions, but it is irresistible, even in its like you know classic form. Uh, it again started from a, a dance rhythm, a Ghanaian dance rhythm, probably during colonial times, and then kind of evolved and moved into this uh, very sophisticated kind of version, um, and. Uh, but what Celso Piña did um, years later in Mexico, now I, I interviewed him once and I said, well, who was your favorite band? You know, uh, what, what musicians influenced you? And he said, well, before the cumbia, before he had really gotten into the cumbia, he loved the Beatles. <laughs> and then he really? was like, yeah. And then he's like, well, but you know, then I thought about it. Hey, dude, because he was from the barrio. He was kind of a street musician in many ways. He's like, you got to listen to music that you understand. <laughs> So he um, heard some of the classic cumbia masters, especially those that um, were playing on the accordion, because there was kind of a more popular street cumbia that was accordion-based. And he fell in love with it, and he taught himself to play the accordion, uh, listening to records, like imitating them. And then... Um, I this mean, is, this is kind of an act of rebellion right there, right? Because he's from northern Mexico, El Norte, Mexico. This is not the thing you play. No, it was it was at that time very. Uh, now we we associate a lot of these rhythms with uh, Monterrey, but it was really Celso Piña who took them there to this northern Mexico city that had an accordion tradition, kind of based more around polkas and waltzes from the you know German kind of influence. And but um, he taught himself to play, and he brought in also this kind of just really raw force that some people have said he was the first punk. Gumbia accordionist, and this is one of his greatest hits that really uh, propelled him into the uh, Latin American mainstream before he hit the big time, and this is Cumbia Sobre el Rio.
Celso Pina, he passed away last week. We're remembering him and his music here on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson. That's a great tune. It is. He was a really an amazing artist, had like such terrific energy. And uh, he he gave this um, genre of kind of a fresh northern Mexico and kind of a other tropical street touch that nobody else really could quite, uh, a lot of people emulated. He says, yeah, before me, there was no cumbia in Monterrey. Then after that, there w- it was all over. Now, this is, as, to this day, at, at Pilsen Fest, just days before his death, he just had a massive, massive crowd. Um, but he became really popular internationally when a video of the famous Gabriel García Márquez, Nobel Prize Colombian author, was shown and he was dancing to Celso Piña's band. And when that video, you know, hit, hit, then everybody started to listen to Celso Piña. And in fact, he has a cumbia, and that's what we're going to hear next. He has a cumbia based on a Gabriel García Márquez to us, a uh, oh, story, really? Chronicle of a Foretold Death. And ah. this is Celso Piña and Crónica de una Muerte Anunciada, a homage to the author that actually brought his music, Gabriel García Márquez brought Celso's music by dancing in a video to the rest of the world, really international acclaim. <laughs> Donde una historia de amor estremeció quienes lo habitan Conocidos como Santiago Nazar, como Ángela Vicario Fueron sus protagonistas Esta historia me la contó García Márquez Que es mi amigo coincidente Pero como es el gran gallo se la contó a todo el mundo Pero yo le voy a decir a la gente Cuál es el nombre del pueblo para que nada quede oculto Pero yo le voy a decir a la gente cuál es el nombre del pueblo para que nada quede oculto. Ay. Era una chica muy linda, Santiago, su amor le entregó. Era una chica muy linda, Santiago, su amor le entregó. Y no se casó con ella el mal. Ahí comenzó Y no se casó con ella El mal Allí comenzó El mal Allí comenzó Santiago Te van a matar El mal Ahí comenzó Santiago Te van a matar Celso Pina and the song that he did for Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, work and, and tribute. 
Yes, and uh, just a, just a little clarification. This is, despite the, the, you might kind of have heard that sweetness of the accordion and kind of a different lilt. This is a different Colombian rhythm that Gabriel Garcia Marquez loved, called Vallenato, born in the valley, Vallenato, which actually, um, all, although Celso is known for his cumbia hits, Celso also took this rhythm, accordion-based rhythm from Colombia to the world, the Vallenato. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez has often said that his book, 100 Years of Solitude, is just one long literary vallenato. So that's uh, his homage to Gabo, to uh, Celso Piña's homage. And uh, What's the next tune we're going to hear? We're well, gonna hear uh, um, from a different artist. Yes, I mean, if this is, uh, we've talked a lot about the past and the cumbia and hundreds of years and where it came from, but uh, it's still incredibly popular. And then it, in a, the last decade or two, actually, um, became a dance club staple in remixes because it is really so uh, rhythmic and danceable. And um, a, this is Camilo Lara, also known as the Mexican Institute of Sound. And he took, uh, as many have, he took cumbia bits and kind of remixed them and just made them, in, again, worldwide dance club favorites. So this is where from uh, from Celso to like Camilo Lara, who also worked with Celso Piña and admired him and wrote a beautiful tribute at his passing. So this is the Mexican Institute of Sound and of course a song called Cumbia. There's the Mexican Institute of Sound bringing cumbia to the dance floor. Um, you know, we're talking about Celso Pina, who passed away last week. And uh, one of the things that was cool about him was his collaborative uh, thing. He was collaborating with everybody, and he um, was doing dance music and all sorts of things, you know, all the way to the end. And this is true. And this is actually an artist that he collaborated with, although this isn't a, it doesn't feature him, but... Um, an artist who had uh, several collaborations with them, Lila Downs, and one of her most famous cumbias, so kind of to share w uh, a more traditional but still 21st century version of the cumbia. And this is uh, Cumbia del Mole, Lila Downs. <laughs> Cura la mala fe, dicen que la hierba le cura la mala fe. A mí 
That's Lila Downs and Cumbia del Mole, and that was lovely. Yeah, I mean, the cumbia in all of its versions, it's been called the musical backbone of the Americas, because <laughs> whether it's in this version or the dance club version, or Celso uh, Piña, who were, uh, it's a small homage and tribute to his music and work today, uh, what he brought, and we were so fortunate to have him here at Pilsen Fest, his last concert, and... Uh, there's probably not going to be anybody like him for a long, long time. He he survived and withered all kinds of industry storms and kept coming back and kept sharing this wonderful cumbia and, in fact, uh, the wonderful rhythms from Colombia, but to the rest of the world. In fact, his very last tweet was, Nadie resiste la cumbia. Nobody resists the cumbia. <laughs> Nobody can resist the cumbia. So um, here's another song of his to uh, to share and go out on. Thank you, Celso Piña. Thank you for everything you did. Thank you for bringing, like he said also, desde Monterrey, the cumbia de Colombia para el mundo. From Monterrey, the Colombian cumbia to the whole world. Celso Piña. Thanks to Catalina Maria Johnson, the host and producer of Beat Latino, for another fine global notes, this time about Celso Pina, the Cuba, uh, Cuba, uh, cumbia artist who uh, died at 66 and shortly after his appearance at Pilsen Fest. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about Sudan. They have a new prime minister in Sudan after uh, the change of power there, and we'll talk about the transition of power in Sudan. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Deja que brille la luna para que ahora toque Rubén. Deja que brille.